hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology, and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. Today's podcast has the potential to completely change the way you spend your time and money. And I'm not exaggerating. In this episode, I'm speaking with Rob Wiblin from 80,000 Hours, an organization that looks into how people can spend their most precious resource, their time, but more specifically, the time they spend working to maximize for the good. The number 80,000 Hours is roughly how long someone spends working in their lifetime, hence the name. It's an organization with its foundations in effective altruism, a philosophy and growing social movement that aims to apply evidence and reason to determine the most effective ways to benefit the world. If this is the first time you've been exposed to these ideas, I highly recommend you check out their websites and content. I'm sure it will change the way you think about and how you navigate the world, and could realistically increase the positive impact you have on the world by orders of magnitude. As I said at the start, my guest today is Rob Wiblin. Rob is Director of Research at 80,000 Hours and hosts the marvellous 80,000 Hours podcast. He studied genetics and economics at the Australian National University and was named Young Alumnus of the Year in 2015. He has worked as a research economist in various Australian government agencies. He was Research Director and then Executive Director at the Centre for Effective Altruism in Oxford and then became Research Director for 80,000 Hours. So in our quick discussion, we hit on quite a few topics, uh, which include how to choose a career path, what is good, universal basic income, why preventing catastrophes may be the best use of your time, global issues that we face today, websites that you can visit to find out how to donate to charity more effectively, why sorting out your mental health might need to be a priority for your life, at least at the moment, and some mental frameworks and tools to help you navigate the world. Before we kick off, I'd just like to flag this episode was recorded around October of 2017, which means that it's very possible that some of what you hear may be inconsistent with what Rob and the 80,000 Hours team believe today. Like any responsible citizens, they are in the habit of reevaluating their positions on things based on new information. That being said, I'm sure that over 90% of what you'll hear is consistent with their beliefs today. And without further ado, I present to you my conversation with Rob Wiblin. So Robert, thank you very much for being on the show and thank you for having me because uh, we're sitting in your home in Berkeley <laughs> recording this um, because you run the 80,000 hours podcast. So we're using your setup, which I'm very thankful for because it means that I haven't had to do much setup. Uh, I've recorded about 12 episodes so far and I've like gradually gotten better at figuring it out. Initially, it was the, the sound quality was a bit of a disaster, well, but sure. you, know, <laughs> you learn. Yeah, according to the sound check, it should be fine. So we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. press on. Um, well, well it's, it's, it's great to be here at my house. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw a post you made on Facebook uh, a couple of weeks ago saying that when you were 23, you'd planned to spend your time uh, working the checkouts at Aldi and um, dedicating the rest of your time to writing content to spread the word about uh, what became effective altruism. So can you tell us the story about how you first got involved or just interested in effective altruism? Yeah, that was a bit of a, uh, of a crazy idea uh, in, in retrospect. I'd never actually you know, had a proper job and I was just thinking, uh, I seem to be getting quite a bit of traction just promoting these ideas online and I don't need that much money really. I could like do this with a, with a very low income. So why don't I just work a few days a week uh, doing checkouts? I don't have to like think about it. And then I'll just be able to you know, use all of my intellectual effort to, to write interesting content, to spread the word about these ideas that I thought was really important. 
but to, to go back a little bit further, uh, I would say I first got into effective altruism when I was uh, 13 and I was just in the high school library and I picked up this book, uh, Writings on an Ethical Life by uh, Peter Singer, uh, who's a fairly well-known proponent of uh, utilitarianism uh, in, in Australia, somewhat a uh, famous philosopher. Uncharacteristic uh, of a thirteen-year-old. <laughs> I think I was reading I, Harry Potter. <laughs> I, I, I was very interested in the big picture issues. I think at a relatively young age, I was really worried about issues like you know, can we really ground like scientific realism, or can, can we like find a good justification for like believing that we have any knowledge at all about the world? This like deeply troubled <laughs> me. Uh, eventually, I ended up uh, just accepting instrumentalism on that question. But yeah, I, I was very interested in uh, like what is like how can we know things? Like what's right and wrong, and how can we how can we figure that out? So I read a lot of philosophy, and I encountered Peter Singer, and. Uh, uh, I think it just fits pretty well with my intuitions about right and wrong, that uh, we should treat people impartially and try to do as much good as we can. Uh, and that more or less also we, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be selfish, uh, that we shouldn't prioritize ourselves over, over other people. Now there's like some additional complications with that, but I think basically that that's on the right track, that, um, there's a lot of things that you and I, and most of the listeners to this program can do that will benefit other people and, and animals uh, enormously, uh, at very little cost to ourselves. It's, it's not, not really burdensome at all. It's actually like, you know, really, really fun stuff to do. Um, and given that it's like a huge benefit and a very small cost to us, uh, why not, why not just try to, uh, you know, help others as, as much as possible. Um, and all of that, all of those ideas have become a lot more fleshed out over the last, uh, well, 17 years, I suppose. Uh, and now it's become a full fledged uh, social movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't, I didn't end up having to work at Audi cause now there's a, there's such a large community that there's uh, people who, uh, make money, uh, professionally and are able to fund a whole lot of researchers, uh, like me, uh, to, to do this work. So uh, I, I, I didn't have to self fund uh, as it turned out, but, uh, I guess in, it actually wasn't such a crazy idea. Uh, you know, I could have done that. Uh, and, and there are some people I know who have, uh, uh, taken jobs just to, just to pay the bills. And then they, you know, uh, spend all of their time uh, promoting the ideas that they think are important. Uh, well, yeah. it's, it's definitely better doing it full time or part time. Yeah. Having to sit there and just wish that it wasn't <laughs> when you're at work, like, Oh, I could, this is not the best use of my time. <laughs> Clean up on aisle 12. Yeah. I think it would have, well, it would have kept me very down to earth, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, yeah so. that's, true. that's true. So, the focus of 80,000 hours is to help people identify how they can use their career uh, most effectively. Mm. Can you talk to me about some of the considerations one might make and how do you weigh up things like education versus mm. getting straight into the workforce? Yeah. So I have a 15 minute talk about this, which I think goes through the ideas really cleanly, which hopefully we can put up a link to, which people, people can watch. Yeah. Well, anything but, discussed, we'll just throw in the show notes. Excellent. Uh, so yeah, our goal is to figure out how you can do as much good as possible with your career. Uh, and that involves being open to many different ways of making a difference. So many different people that you might be able to help or potentially you might want to work on, uh, you know, non-human animals, uh, try to help them as well. It could be open to uh, taking many different professions. Uh, so you could potentially go into politics or engineering or become an academic or, you know, become a public intellectual. Um, and you could work on many different problems, right? So you could try to solve climate change. You could try to improve education. You could try to improve health. You could think about, you know, what new technologies are coming up and how might they be used for good or potentially for ill. There's a lot of different ways you could try to make a difference. And it's obviously a very difficult question. Uh, how do you analyze all of these different things and then weigh them up and then figure out uh, which are the, which are the very best ones. And because it's such a massive question, such a, such a large research project, you know, all of the ideas that we've had over the last five years that we've been running have necessarily been tentative. But because so little effort has gone into trying to answer this question of how, you know, talented graduates or just people in general can try to do as much good with their career. If you start really thinking about it, uh, you immediately start, you know, having some insights that other people uh, haven't, haven't immediately had. There's quite a low hanging, hanging fruit there. 
Uh, and I think even though our, our ideas are like far from perfect, uh, we're doing a lot better than you know an individual would do if they tried to answer this question uh, just by themselves before launching on a career. We're, we've been able to have you know many people working for for many years, you know, trying to discover all of the all of the ideas that have been out there that you know academics have thought about. Uh, that you know, experts in different fields uh, have realized, and then we try to you know collate that into our career guide and into the podcast and all the other resources on our website. Uh, do you want me to go into, I guess, some of the, some of the key ideas? Yeah, uh, please. Cool. I'll just have... So before we get into that, um, could we just define what is what is good? Yeah, <laughs> that's a million dollar question. Uh, Different people on the team and different people in the effective altruism community have uh, different, you know, specific ideas about you know exactly what they think is good and what's bad. Uh, the thing that we tend to focus on is welfare, though, because almost everyone from every different, uh, you know, moral or like uh, you know philosophical school of thought thinks that it's bad when people suffer. Uh, and it's probably good when they uh, have pleasure or they are flourishing in, in some broader sense. So there's a lot of things that, uh, you know, could be good or bad. Like we, can, we might also like many, many people who read the site will also care independently say about justice and fairness and that kind of thing. But the thing that we try to zero in on is what things can we do that will make a lot of like raise the welfare of as many people in as big a way as possible. Uh, so we're thinking, you know, how do you like get people out of poverty? Uh, how do you get people to stop suffering because of, uh, you know, terrible ill health or depression or things like that? Yeah. Uh, so, so that tends to be the thing that we're, that we're focused on. And I think almost everyone would agree that, you know, it's bad when, when people have like horrible depression and they're suffering all the time. And so like, it's possible to get a lot of people on board with that, with that mission. Yeah. Um, you, you said a word there, uh, flourishing. Which, yeah. which really interests me um, because I've been doing a lot of thinking about universal basic income and like what is the role of society and I mean don't want to surprise you with the question on universal basic income but in my mind um, the role of society to a certain degree is to uh, create a world or create a place to maximize for the the flourishing of, of the citizens and in my mind a universal basic income is one way of doing that because yeah. what you're doing is liberating them from, uh, you know, economic constraints or mm. what some people could describe as economic slavery and then allow them to use their time however they will um, to, you know, maximize for their own utility. And an idea that I've been toying with is that everyone should be, everyone should have access to the internet and a personal computing device because the degrees of freedom that, that would make available to the individual is just, you know, absurd compared to what they would have if they didn't have access to the internet and they could just maximize for their own utility in so many more ways than they would uh, otherwise. So what, what are your mm. thoughts on that? In, in on, on the universal basic income, universal or, basic income and just question of that. that whole, so, that whole spiel. Right. So there's, some people have kind of a thicker conception of well-being where they're thinking not only about, you know, the pleasure that you might get from having food, but also, uh, you know, are you satisfied? Are you like accomplishing your goals in life, your, your broader goals? Are you like really achieving everything that you could, uh, which is like often comes under this, like uh, this term of, of flourishing, I guess, goes back to ancient, ancient Greek philosophy. Eudaimonia. Yeah. Eudaimonia. Yeah. Exactly. So personally, I actually lean towards a more narrow conception of what a good life is. And I think, uh, in, like if you just experience pleasure, but you didn't have this broader, uh, kind of flourishing if you were just like constantly having positive sensations but you like weren't accomplishing amazing things i think that is still potentially a very good life mm -hmm. but i think i'm probably in, in the minority of that. hedonism right yeah so I, I take a little bit more of a like narrow or at least 
I'm not saying that flourishing is important. I'm just saying I don't think it would be bad if someone had a life of like just pleasure. Um, I will jump interject and just say yeah. I, the good thing is in my mind is that we're kind of programmed to derive pleasure and satisfaction yeah. from helping other people. So, so in most ordinary it. cases, these actually these things don't terribly come apart because if someone's you know achieving mastery at something that's important to them, then they're going to experience a lot of pleasure as well. So typically, you know, pleasure and satisfaction and flourishing tend to go together, uh, but sometimes they come apart. Like a case would be. Uh, for many people having children uh, is something that they find very satisfying and very fulfilling and like causes them to like flourish and grow up and all of these things, achieve these broader goals. But it's not necessarily pleasurable at the time because it's a lot of, a lot of work, a lot of like sleepless nights, uh, a lot of difficult things that they have to do. Um, so that, 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 that's one case where you, if, if you just track, um, you know, welfare surveys, uh-huh. you find that new parents, uh, they say that they're satisfied with life, but they're not happy, um, which is, which yeah, is interesting. Yeah, I've heard that um, people, you can tell if someone like, you know, if, if you're in your, your mid thirties, let's say you can tell the people who have had kids and who haven't just because the ones who have just look older. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Some of my friends have kids and it's definitely, uh, I'm sure that they'll, you know, derive benefits <laughs> later in life, but it's a, it's a, it's a tough road. Um, but I, I, the other part of your question was about this universal basic income and whether that would increase, mm-hmm. uh, you know, happiness and flourishing. Uh, a lot of people think so. Uh, and it's, it, it's a, a reasonable view. Uh, my, my background actually is in economics and like public policy stuff. I spent a lot of time uh, studying uh, those kinds of questions, these issues of how, how do you run a welfare state uh, in a way that, um, isn't too expensive, but like helps a lot of people in a big way. And I think I'm actually a bit of a skeptic uh, about this one. I think like that the universal basic income uh, is definitely somewhere that we want to go eventually in a hundred years time. Yes, we're definitely going to need it. Uh, we might even need it in a few decades if, uh, you know, uh, machine intelligence ends up uh, taking over like most of the jobs that humans can do. We don't know when that will happen, but it'll probably happen I eventually. I think us podcasters might be safe. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, is it, is it that hard to do what we do? I don't know. I wouldn't want to overstate definitely it. Definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty fun. Um, maybe it the machines will enjoy it as yeah. well. But uh, yeah, so we, so we do need to get there eventually. But there's some like good um, public policy reasons why I think, in fact, a more targeted welfare system is probably better at the moment. One thing is if you want to do a true universal basic income where you uh, actually provide a, you know, a sustainable income, like an amount that someone could really live a happy life on to everyone, and you're going to do it regardless of how much they're earning. This is very expensive. This ends up absorbing something like 40 or 50% of like all the, of all of economic output uh, in mm-hmm. a country. And you have to raise that through taxation before you give it out. So what in practice will end up happening is you'll end up having a very uh, uh, skimpy, uh, probably universal basic income, because that's just too much given all of the other things that governments have to do as well. Um, and I think actually just given current, current levels of income, uh, probably, um, we should be trying to target the money that we're redistributing more towards people who can't work because say they're sick or they're disabled, uh, or can't get a job, even though they're trying to get it. Uh, and eventually we should transition towards a universal basic income. So people just don't have to work, uh, once society is rich enough. Uh, but at the moment, I think if you just do the math, uh, the, the problem is if we're going to provide a universal basic income to absolutely everyone, um, then that absorbs so much money that we don't have really enough to support uh, the people who like desperately need more income. And, and we end up giving money to people like you and me who could work and could sustain themselves mm-hmm. uh, uh, pretty easily. Uh, and we'd have less to give to people who are really sick or just can't get a job. Yeah. Yeah, but well, that, that's a whole half hour discussion. Well, a is, many hour long discussion. Sure. I'll, just, I'll put up a link to an article that explains my view on this because the universal basic great. income. That'd be great. Yeah, it's it's such a popular idea, and I think it's uh, it's just it's gotten a little bit overrated in the mm. hype cycle. Well, it's, I'm very excited to see what the um, the research and the the experiments. Mm. Very, I'm very excited to see what they show because I guess we don't really know, and it's hard to do these experiments. I mean, you can't really experiment with this sort of stuff because you kind of need to do a, take a whole country and do it. Yeah. To, to get some. So some people have been doing what, an experiment in Canada. Canada, think, yeah. and then there's. 
Finland and I've heard of things in parts of Africa and in yeah. and India. But so, so if the future goes well, we're going to end up with that everywhere uh, for everyone, yeah. hopefully, eventually. I just yeah. think maybe not right now. Yeah. Anyway, sorry for that digression. <laughs> um, we were talking about what is deemed to be good and... Right. Um, so there's different conceptions of this and we try not to be, uh, to take too narrow a view. Mm-hmm. Uh, we try to like look for things that almost everyone would, would agree uh, are good and bad and then uh, try to focus on those. But maybe we could talk about, you know, how we try to pick problems uh, that we think yeah, we should work on. Definitely. Definitely. Cause I think that this is one of our, one of our big ideas and where you can potentially get the, the biggest gains by, by reading our research. So most people, when they're trying to figure out if, if they're trying to do good with their lives and they're, they're a teenager or they're, you know, an undergraduate and they're trying to figure out Uh, what am I going to do with my life? They tend to just fall into working on whatever problem their friends are working on or or whatever is being talked about in in the media a lot. Um, it's very rare to meet someone who decided to work on a particular problem uh, because they did a comparison between like all of the problems that they could work on and tried to figure out which one they would be able to help the most people with. And that's very understandable because it's an extremely difficult problem. If you're just one person trying to figure this out, you really do need, you know, an expert research team who have specialized in this question. Uh, but that's what we and other, other organizations have been trying to do is to answer this question. If you want to make a big difference, which problem should you try to solve? Uh, and we think that the gains that you get by being doing this systematic comparison are not small. It's not like you have twice as much income, uh, so what, twice as much social impact if you focus on one thing rather than another. It's more like 10 or 100 or possibly even 1,000 mm-hmm. uh, fold gains by being strategic about it. And if you're talking about existential threats. Right. I mean, it could be infinite if the, the alternative <laughs> is the annihilation of the human race. Well, yeah, uh, probably, it wouldn't be infinite exactly, <laughs> but it would be, it would be potentially a very large number. This is yeah. one of the arguments that we could talk about. Yeah, That's yeah, that, yeah. Uh, seem, it seems compelling on its face, but then p- some people are skeptical about it. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll come back to For the those interest. who really want to um, hear more about that. Check out uh, Rob's podcast <laughs> with uh, Toby Ord. I listened to it the other day and it, uh, it's very informative, about two and a half hours uh, long. Really enjoyed it. So uh, I'll, I'll throw a link in, in the show notes to that as well. Yeah, that's that's a huge a huge topic in itself. But what what we try to do basically is l- look at a bunch of different problems that we've kind of pre-selected because they stand out on some dimension. So uh, they could be very you could be helping people who are like very badly off, so looking for the poorest people or the most unhappy people. Uh, or you could find uh, a problem that's like really large in scale. So you might want to like find the largest disease and then try to invent a cure for it. Uh, or you could be working on something that uh, most people don't yet recognize as a problem. So uh, it's it's very neglected. There could be a lot of low-hanging fruit because no one else is trying to solve it. Mm-hmm. And so we, we shortlist different problems that might be really promising to work on uh, based on these criteria. And then we try to... Uh, do a whole lot of basic research to try to figure out how large is the scale of this problem? So how many people or animals are affected by it? And like how large is the damage um, that, that they're suffering? Or how, much, how large would be the gain? if we solved it. Then we think about uh, how many people are already working on it. So we'll try to make a list of all of the organizations that are trying to solve this problem, uh, either directly or indirectly, and then estimate how much money they're spending on it. And also, to some extent, how well it's being spent. Uh, is, is this money being squandered such that there could still be lots of good things that, that someone could do if they entered the field? And then we think about how hard is how, how hard a problem is this to solve. So there are some problems that are very huge in scale uh, and almost no one's working on them. Uh, but they're basically that's because they can't be solved, or we, we have very strong evidence to think they can't be solved. So you could try to make a, a perpetual motion machine or something like that, which would just solve all of our energy problems forever. Basically, no one but Cranks is trying to do that. And the reason is because we believe it's impossible and we have strong reasons to think that. Uh, so we look at these different criteria, how large it is in scale. Uh, how neglected it is and how easy the problem is to solve. We want to find something that affects a lot of people in a big way that no one's yet trying to solve and that it would be easy to solve if, if we tried. Uh, and you just see enormous differences between different problems on these, on these criteria. 
Uh, and so I, I really just think that you get very large gains by being strategic and then choosing uh, from among the best problems on, the, on these criteria. And could you just give some examples of the really, really big problems that yeah. research uh, backs and contrast and perhaps with some of the ones that we might think are important, but mm. are actually not as important as we, we might think? Sure. So one of the first uh, things that we noticed uh, early on in the research was that you could <clears throat> It seemed like you could have a much larger impact if you tried to focus on helping people in the developing world, in the world's poorest countries, rather than people in rich countries. And the reasons for this are fairly fairly obvious. Uh, the problems that you have in rural Kenya are problems that have already been solved almost completely in countries like the UK or, or Australia. It's like people don't have any soap to wash their hands, and so they don't wash their hands, so they don't have antibiotics to you know treat uh, tonsillitis and things like that. So it's easy problems that are easy to solve because we've already solved them in most of the world. Uh, it's relatively neglect neglected because there aren't so many rich philanthropists in Kenya who can afford to pay for this stuff and the government doesn't have very much money and it, the, we do send they do have might go you know yeah and what's being spent is like often yeah. often wasted yeah um uh, and yes, there's aid and yes, there's international philanthropy, but uh, really if you, if you look at on a per person basis, how much money is being transferred from rich countries to poor countries, uh, it's, we're talking about like a hundred dollars per person per year, which just doesn't go that far. If you tried to spend a hundred dollars to like improve our lives, you just couldn't, couldn't get that far. And there's a seven. lot of problems. hundred dollars in San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. No, it gets you, it gets you maybe, maybe brunch, but, yeah. um, uh, so it's, so it's neglected and just the, num the number of people who are affected by, you know, really basic diseases and just like horrible living conditions because they're very poor uh, is very large. And, and, and the suffering per person is, is seems to be really quite significant. So that's that's one of the first steps you can take is to focus on the developing world. Then you've got other cases like you might notice, oh, wow, there's actually tens of billions of animals in factory farms who seem to be kept in conditions that, you know, if you kept your pet, uh, if you kept your pet the way that, that we farm animals, then you'd be sent to jail because it would just be so, so horrific, so cruel. Um, so you think, well, that, that's a problem that's neglected because most people, it's just not on their radar. Uh, they're not thinking about it or they, or they think animals perhaps aren't morally so important or they have you know, particular incentives like they enjoy eating meat that cause them uh, not to focus on this problem. Uh, so it is, it is a very neglected problem and potentially the amount of suffering that might exist in factory farms seems very large. So, so there's like another option that might be you know, a lot better than what you might otherwise pick if you, if you weren't looking more broadly at what, what problems exist in society. And then, as, as you mentioned earlier, there's these other classes of uh, approaches you can take to improve the world where you're focusing mostly on what things can you change that will have very long-term impacts. So it won't just benefit people who are alive right now, won't just make this year better, but will make the world better in 10 years or 100 years or 1,000 years. And there's a bunch of different ways you could potentially go about this. Uh, one that we thought about early on was you could do scientific research because if you discover something, some like you discover a new drug, you discover like a new mathematical theorem, that as long as civilization doesn't go off the rails, then that potentially sticks around forever. We still benefit from the research, the scientific research that was done in the 15th century. Uh, and it, maybe we're not using exactly the same thing, but the work that they did there sped up all of the uh, all of the advances that came later on. So we we are in a better position, and we have you know better technologies to improve our lives because of the work that scientific researchers did in the 15th centuries. So very, very long-term impacts, hundreds of years. Uh, we can already see that. Uh, so that's one way you could try to improve things is try to speed up uh, technological advance, try to speed up scientific research. But I think there's another class of things that are even more impactful. And they are basically trying to prevent a disaster that would take civilization off the rails and prevent us from gradually improving our welfare and, and just uh, making the world into a really good place. Uh, so for, if you think, if you imagine that there was a nuclear war that killed, you know, a majority of the world's population and left uh, the rest kind of in ruins, uh, that would very clearly have impacts like that are more than one year, 
more than 100 years, potentially it could just change the trajectory of human civilization basically forever going forward. Um, and so it's pretty clear if you can prevent a catastrophe like that, that just causes uh, society, like organized society as a whole to break down, uh, or that prevents human extinction, something from which we absolutely definitely cannot recover, uh, then you would be having impacts on generations uh, for, for you know, potentially hundreds of generations that might come in the future. And now, now this, is, this is a very kind of complicated area and... Um, People have objections to that uh, that line of argument um, that need to be thought about uh, seriously, and so we can put up a link to the interview with Toby where we consider you know the pros and cons of that view. But that's that's probably the area that I personally would focus on mm-hmm. is trying to make society more resilient to to risks and make sure that humanity doesn't go extinct or have some other kind of disaster from which we can't recover or don't recover. And some of these. Uh Potential disasters include pandemics, nuclear war, um, artificial intelligence, yeah, and perhaps I mean these are the ones that we have more of a more control over. And then there's yeah. things like uh, asteroids, perhaps, yeah, super volcanoes, maybe not super volcanoes because we would be stuffed. <laughs> well, I saw NASA's actually trying to stop trying to trying to figure out how you would diffuse a super volcano. Uh, so people are people are trying to work on well, that. That's good news. Yeah, that is potentially. Good news. <laughs> I don't know whether you can do it, but uh, it's probably, you know, you should have someone looking at that because if mean, you had a super at, at volcano. It'd be good to know whether or not yeah, we can. Or exactly. Cannot. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, let's just, do a, let's just do a quick overview of those kind of threats. Um, people might well be interested in this. So the obvious one is, you know, asteroids. There's been lots of movies about that. Uh, and a few decades ago, NASA realized that they could actually just survey this guy to find out all of the asteroids that might hit Earth. Uh, and see if any of them were going to hit Earth like in the next 100 years. And if there was, then they could, you know, develop technology to try to deflect them. Because if you deflect them, you know, a de- 10 years ahead, all you have to do is make a tiny, push it a slight uh, way and, you know, away from the Earth and then it's not going to hit us. So it'd actually be quite straightforward. So they did it. They surveyed basically all of the asteroids down to like pretty small ones. And they found that we're not going to be hit by an asteroid anytime soon. Let's hope they didn't miss any. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed, fingers <laughs> crossed. But what they could have missed actually is uh, comets because uh, comets are darker. They don't reflect light as much. And so they're quite a lot harder to spot. So there is still a risk that a comet, uh, which is a, like a block mm-hmm. of ice uh, rather yeah, than stone. You'd think that that would reflect um, more light than, yeah, a, interesting. Um, than a meteor. I th- yeah. Maybe I don't know the science behind that. Maybe it's like a, it's a glass, <laughs> <I'll>, <laughs> a beautiful cosmic glass. <laughs> I'll go back and double check that. I think uh, once they get close to the sun, then they start melting and they become very visible. Mm-hmm. But when they're like out in deep space, I mm-hmm. think that they're very hard to spot. Um, I'll just go back and double check that. But I think comets are comets are less of a risk, and we know how often comets and asteroids mm-hmm. hit the Earth because we can look at the record of how frequently they've done so in the past, and we just know that the risk each century is extremely low. I think you know less than one in one in ten thousand or something like that. So. That's, that's not a huge risk. It's something that we should have done. I'm glad NASA did it, but it's not a, not a big deal. Then you've got uh, other, but yeah, the next obvious um, natural risk is a pandemic. So in the past, we've had things like the Black Death, which you know swept through Europe, I believe, in the 16th century. Uh, I think several times uh, during, during the Middle Ages. And uh, in some places, it killed over 50% of the population. It just left absolute devastation and completely changed society. And uh, in some ways, we're more, more vulnerable to that kind of thing now because one, that there's more people on Earth. So there's more diseases out there sitting around in people that are evolving all the time and potentially changing and becoming very dangerous. Uh, and so there's now everyone, like, everyone's got the travel bug. Everyone's exactly. traveling everywhere. So as soon Hashtag as the disease... wanderlust. <laughs> right. So uh, travel could be the end of us uh, because as, as soon as a disease appears uh, these days, it spreads around the world incredibly quickly. Uh, if, if you don't catch it, if you don't have sufficient surveillance to like detect a new disease, then it can be very quickly out of control uh, by the time you realize that anything's going on. Do you know on. if we have a global um, CDC or equivalent? 
Uh, well, there's the World Health Organization. I have a very long podcast. Yeah. It's two and a half hours. Where we talk about all of these issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we have the Centers for Disease Control in the US, which does provide some of, yeah. uh, you know, uh, a global service to try and, to and do the surveillance. Who, the, um, the the, do that as well? The World Health Organization nominally is responsible for all of this. Yeah, they don't have the money. <laughs> yeah, they don't have the money basically to do it properly. Uh, we saw with the Ebola outbreak in Africa, mm-hmm. which in some ways should have been relatively straightforward because it's not a disease that spreads very easily. Uh, and we've had experience with it uh, for, for decades. Ebola's been around for a while. Um, their response basically was a complete shambles uh, by, by their own admission. They wrote a very long report where they said, this is how we should change things. Um, That's good. It is good. It's good that they did that. I, I'm not an expert on whether, you know, how much mm-hmm. this has been implemented. And I think at the end yeah. of the day, if they don't have the money to do these things and they don't get the cooperation from the countries that are involved, then it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, there are there are smart people thinking about this, but it's still quite a neglected problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, there's I think, a whole issue of like genetically engineered super right. as well, which is more, more Yeah. Human. Well, it doesn't even have to get to the point of genetic engineering, actually. Uh, there were some scientists in the US and the Netherlands who took bird flu, which is one of these, you know, new flus in, uh, in a species that humans interact with a lot that, that sometimes jumps into humans. Uh, they, they bred it basically in ferrets for a while and to see how dangerous they could make it, how contagious and how uh, virulent. So like what fraction of the ferrets they could kill. Uh, ferrets are apparently a good model for, uh-huh. for flu. Um, and they made an incredibly dangerous flu that if it like escaped the lab, there is a reasonable chance that it would have killed hundreds of millions of people, potentially billions of people. We don't know because it hasn't been put into humans. We don't know, in fact, uh, how contagious it is in humans rather than ferrets. But uh, they didn't have to use genetic engineering for this. They just used breeding. They would select the, the, the worst viruses and then just, you know, put, mm-hmm. the, give the, put them into a new ferret and then, then keep cycling it. And you end up producing something very dangerous very easily. Um, and that stuff is going to get worse. Uh, there was a huge outcry from the scientific community. Uh, there's like some new regulations, but it's not uh, really sufficient. Uh, and we're just getting better and better at uh, manipulating diseases and making them progressively more dangerous. So that's something that people in the government recognize as a big problem. Uh, basically, everyone in the area recognizes mm-hmm. it as a problem, but we don't, haven't figured out the solutions yet. Um, and it's something where I think one person could potentially have a really large impact if they focus their career on that. And it's one of the paths that we recommend. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested in that, definitely go check out the podcast with Howie Lempel. It really uh, goes into a very deep dive about this problem. Okay. And um, there's artificial intelligence, which we won't uh, hit on today because of time constraints. Um, To the people listening out there, I mean, I just want to talk very quickly about how they could um, donate um, Mm. effectively. Right. Rather than, so they've got an income and they're happy with their career and they wish to put 10% aside because, you know, their religion's telling them they should or they just feel like they they should. Um, What are some effective um, ways that they could spend yeah. money. So we have a, we have a post about this that, mm-hmm. that I can link to. It, it really does depend on your judgment about which problems you think are most pressing because effective autism has grown and we now have had the resources to, you know, shortlist organizations across lots of different problem areas that are doing really good work to reduce poverty, doing really good work to help animals, uh, doing really good work to, you know, reduce these risks that humanity as a whole faces. And we have recommendations across all of those different areas. Um, if you wanted to work on poverty, I think, uh, the thing that most people in the community do is donate to global health charities. So just like really evidence-based mm. uh, ways of preventing people from dying of diseases like malaria or diarrhea. And or you guys have shortlisted all these charities yeah. as well. You've done the, the so, hard so yards and figured out. So we haven't, not at 80,000 hours, but other groups have. Yeah. Uh, so there's GiveWell, which does mm-hmm. really extensive research into these organizations. And those are the most tried and tested mm-hmm. organizations, I think, uh, almost out there in the, in the entire like nonprofit space, maybe globally. Um, so you've got the Against Malaria Foundation mm-hmm. and the Schistosomiasis Control 
Solar Initiative. Mm-hmm. To be honest, if, if I was donating towards um, trying to reduce poverty and help people in the developing world, I actually might donate to a think tank, uh, potentially the Center for Global Development, which does a bunch of research and lobbying work in America uh, to try to produce better policies for alleviating poverty. Or potentially also a think tank in a country like India mm-hmm. that's trying to improve policy. Uh, that stuff is always going to be more speculative. Mm-hmm. Uh, but potentially, if you can if you can change like you know national government policy in a country like India, so that you have like uh, less sclerotic like economic regulations, mm-hmm. or you have like a better health system, uh, then you can help a lot of people all at once. Uh, and I think the the expected value of that looks looks better to me probably than just scaling up proven health treatments. But that's something that people mm-hmm. have a diversity of views on. And if you're earning, you know, let's say above. $80,000 a year, the, your quality of life um, well, the marginal increase in quality of life isn't going to be that much yeah. compared to the uh, the good you could do by donating a part of that money, right? Yeah. So the overall amount of good you could do uh, with your financial resources would just be huge if you were to just give, you know, $5,000 a year away to some of these charities. Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's basically right. It depends a little bit what city you live in, what part of life you are. But yeah, for most people uh, who are earning, you know, $80,000 in the United States, if they were to give 10% of their income, uh, they won't be able to, you know, maybe eat out quite as much. They won't be able to go to quite as expensive bars. But uh, by and large, your your life is going to be completely fine. Mm -hmm. We've actually, we did a huge uh, literature review of, um, uh, all of the research onto uh, income and happiness, and we found that above about fifty or sixty thousand uh, dollars per person per year, uh, it doesn't see, there doesn't seem to be really much of a correlation uh, with, with happiness. Uh, you know, as you, as you get higher incomes, at least not in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a fairly good reason to think that yeah, the, the effect on you might be nothing. It could even be positive if you find this to be very fulfilling to have make this a part of your life uh, to to help other people um, around the world. Um, uh, and, and it's pretty clear that with, with that kind of money, with $8,000, you can make a really large difference to, to the welfare of, of people in the developing world. Uh, there's many people out there in rural Kenya who are living on you know hundreds of dollars a year, uh, That's and that's adjusted for the cost of living. And so with that money, you could potentially uh, you know get 20 of those people and you know double their income for a year. And that's clearly more, I think, benefit than you personally would get from you know eating out uh, yeah. a bit more. Oh, especially considering what most people would eat when they eat yeah. out. Yeah, Every right, time right. I go to the restaurant, I'm like, ooh, what's the nice biggest burger? Okay, here are the best pizza. Um, so, what are some uh, mental tools or uh, frames that people could use uh, that the listeners out here could use that they might not have considered to help them navigate the world uh, more rationally or just to, mm. to make better decisions? Are there any that uh, you might have come across over the past few years or anything that you're excited about at the moment? It could just be you know reframing a problem or right, right. Um, the five whys. You know, trying mm. to get down to first principles. Yeah, I think so. One approach that we very often take is uh, considering base rates. So this is something some of your listeners might have heard of uh, that Daniel Kahneman has uh, written about in the book, Thinking Fast and Slow. But basically, very often when we're given a difficult question, uh, like, you know, what are your odds of getting into Congress uh, if you if you try to get into Congress? Uh, that's, that's a very hard question. And people often... Uh, they neglect how many people run for office. They neglect like how many people could try to run for office, and then think and how many people actually get in. They produce some kind of like intuitive judgment on that, but you can do a lot better just by considering uh, what fraction of like try to find some group of people who uh, most of them are going to try to try to run for office. And you think imagine that I could get into that class of people. Uh, my, my odds then would just be kind of the average of, of that group. So, for example, when we were trying to answer this question of, yeah, what would be your odds of getting into Congress if you tried to get in? We found uh, 
the, the, like a group that were many of them actually ran uh, for office and that they had a reasonably high rate. And that was um, graduates of Yale and Harvard Law School, where quite a lot of them tried, tried to pursue careers in politics. And then, in fact, they're like extremely overrepresented in, in Congress. Um, and then we you know, had to make like various other, other estimations, but we figured that it actually seems like about one in 50 of them uh, get into Congress uh, if, if they try. So if you're someone who could go to Harvard Law School uh, and get a degree, then maybe you can bring your odds up to one in 50 based on the number that have been elected in the past and how many of them exist in the world. Mm-hmm. And that, that's basically using this kind of bait rate, base rate analysis. So you think you define some class and you think what fraction of that group uh, d- does succeed at this. And so if I'm in that class, probably I'm just typical of that, of that class. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's like a way of getting some traction on answering very difficult questions and also avoiding getting bamboozled by your like personal views about yourself or about your friends mm-hmm. and like always assuming that you're special and different from other people. We're, we're actually like in a way more like other people than we think, or like we're not, everyone wants to think that they're exceptional, but yeah. in fact, it, so, <laughs> I think like 90% of drivers rate themselves as above average at driving. So that's exactly right. Uh, and and because, I definitely am above average at driving. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. For sure. <laughs> I, I'm not, I, I actually don't drive. But, um, yeah, I, I think that's a way of avoiding some of these biases that you get when you're thinking about yourself and, uh, uh, this actually this comes up quite a lot. Uh, so imagine that we're advising someone on pursuing a career in biomedical research, and they want to know like what are my odds of actually getting an academic job if I do a PhD in some kind of biomedical research field. The way we try to answer that is we find out just what fraction of all biomedical uh, like PhD graduates actually get academic jobs, and you find it's very low. It's a few percent. Uh, it's an extremely competitive competitive field. Uh, most people don't get these jobs. And then sure you can make an adjustment and say, well I think I'm better than a typical graduate. I think I'm one of the exceptional ones. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're wrong. Maybe you're just kidding yourself. Uh, but I think that's where you always want to start. It's just like, what is the base rate of success, mm-hmm. the typical rate across mm-hmm. this whole group? And there's always, in terms of uh, optimizing for performance, there's getting enough sleep, adequate nutrition, yeah. um, you know, exercise and all that yeah. sort of stuff. So well, kind of, it's, it's not as attractive, but it's still necessary. Yeah. Uh, one of them, I think actually our most popular article ever is, um, all of the evidence-based advice on, on how to be successful. And we talk a lot about, yeah, taking care of yourself mm-hmm. and mental health. I saw as well. Absolutely. That. That's yeah. That's one that of the top could ones. Be one of the most in, in your younger years, dealing with your mental health issues early on could be in some yeah. cases should be one's priority. Yeah. I think that's, uh, just correct. Um, mm-hmm. like a lot of people, you know, develop some kind of mental health issue in their teens and their twenties, most often depression or anxiety. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that you can do and that has, uh, if you try to get treatment, if you try to get, uh, you know, antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs, or you take, you get therapy, talk therapy, or cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, after after trying all these options, about eighty percent of people have have a massive improvement in these conditions, and that can just ab- revolutionize how much people can accomplish. Uh, if you're if you're getting depressed all the time, that that can set you back uh, quite a bit. Yeah, uh, life of a depressed person. You'd, you'd, if you were to have a choice between a depressed person and a happy person in society, you'd want a happy person. Definitely. I mean, yeah. but both for their welfare and because <laughs> exactly. of like the good that they can do for the others. Welfare as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I think even if if, if you're 19 and you think, well, maybe I have depression, it could potentially be worth you spending an entire year just trying to like deal with your depression. Mm-hmm. That would pay itself off uh, easily over the course of the rest of your career. Now, of course, you don't actually have to spend an entire year doing this. It's something that you do part time. It like might take weeks of work or months of work. But the, the, the invest, the return on investment you get from that kind of thing, from talking to your doctor about having depression or anxiety or some other, some other mental health issue, uh, it is just huge. 
Um, and we're not talking about, you know, in terms of dollars, we're talking, it, it's priceless, right? Because it's right. your own experience in this world. So you can't really yeah. get your own price, especially because you're the one locked in this meat wagon. This meat vehicle. <laughs> you can't escape, you know, so you may as well try and yeah. make it as... It's as worth it from any point of view. Experience. Yeah. It's worth it from like the amount of extra money you'll make because mm-hmm. you'll be able to pursue a better career uh, versus the amount of money it costs to cure. It's worth it clearly from a welfare point of view because mm-hmm. you just will have a much better experience in life. It's mm-hmm. worth it from time point of view as well because it's like, it, sure, it takes some time to deal with depression, uh, but you'll be able to like accomplish so much more because you won't be lying in bed being unhappy. Well. Yeah, yeah, you do live longer. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know it's quite bad for life expectancy. So I think if I had one piece of advice for you know young people who are listening or just really anyone who's listening is uh, if you have uh, some, if you think that you might have some kind of mental health uh, issue, like read up about it, talk to your doctor, uh, get treatment. Uh, it's good for you. It's good for the world. Mm-hmm. Are there any um, books or documentaries that uh, have really changed the way you viewed the world? I mean, obviously the one that you read when you were 13 by Peter Singer, but any, uh, <laughs> recently. Yeah. Interesting. I'll just have to think. It's a good question. Let's see. Uh, one, one book I read recently, which definitely changed my, changed my perspective on things, was the, the Dictator's Handbook by a researcher called Bruce Breno de Mesquita, who tries to do uh, forecasting of you know, geopolitical events and political events uh, within countries. So he wrote this book where he described uh, why it is that dictators or authoritarian leaders tend to treat their population so poorly. And sometimes the reason is that they're sadistic, that they actually, or they're just unempathetic, so they don't care. But the other reason is that uh, leaders in a country or leaders of organizations are, are not as powerful as they might seem. In order to remain in power, they have to satisfy all of the people who choose who runs the organization. So it's like, uh, you know, the, direct, the CEO of the company has to please the, please the board. Uh, the vice president has to make sure that all of the people under him are like willing to continue su- supporting him or her. So, uh, for that reason, in order to stay in power, they have to take all of the resources that they can get and give it out or basically like help out the people who uh, are necessary for them to stay in the role. Uh, otherwise, they'll get turfed out. Now, the thing is like not everyone does this. So some, some authoritarian leaders uh, who are dependent on a small group of people to stay in power do try to use their resources to help the population as a whole. But they tend to get kicked out by those people because they're not uh, providing, like giving as much as they could to, the, to those groups. And another competitor comes along and says, uh, if you make me your leader, then I'll give more money to the military. I'll give more money to the generals. And so there's a coup. And the, the leader who was trying to improve the, the, the country as a whole gets kicked out in favor of someone who's going to support the people who are, whose support is absolutely necessary to retain power. Now, why is this interesting for uh, effective altruists? I guess uh, there's a a tendency with people who want to improve the world to just think, I had this great idea for like how things could be better. And if only people would just do this obvious thing, then the world would be a lot better. But very often there's institutional constraints. There's reasons why people who seem to have a lot of power can't do that thing because it would be too costly for them and they would lose their job if they did it. I think that's something that's very important to keep in mind is uh, um, how does power work? Like how do people retain power and what are the limitations on them so that you can design ways of changing the world that wouldn't just work if everyone was, you know, a great person. Everyone was, you know, ideally altruistic and just trying to to do the right thing, but actually work in the world that we live in where people uh, face trade-offs where, you know, potentially suggesting the right policy as a politician could get you to lose your, uh, lose your seat uh, and get you unelected. Um, 
there's very difficult trade-offs there a lot of the time. So uh, yeah, the dictator's handbook, okay. if you want to learn about how power works. <laughs> I'll throw that into the, uh, the show notes. And are there any uh, messages that you have for the audience or any requests, anything you'd like to say before you wrap up? See? Well, uh, if you found this interesting, if, if you're interested in doing as much good as you can with your career, check out 80,000hours.org uh, and subscribe to the 80,000 Hours podcast. I think we got like a lot of interesting conversations already up and, and even more coming yeah, in the pipeline. I, I can vouch for that there. Yeah, very good. I've only listened to one so far with Toby Ward, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, yeah, so you can you can subscribe just by searching for eighty thousand hours in, in numbers. In numbers, yeah, yeah. Uh, in whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. Mm-hmm. So it'd be, it'd be great to have you listening. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. Fantastic. It's been a great pleasure. Well, thank you for tuning into this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it with people who you think might find it to be valuable. Who knows? It might just change their entire life trajectory. You can find the show notes at talkoftoday.com. And until next time, thank you for listening.